Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Square Off. This is T.R. Smith and I am joined by Shane Rogers, who is also the host of Midnight Facts for Insomniac. Shane, welcome. Thank you. All right, so here we are. We are maybe seven days into the Biden administration. We've had a flurry of executive actions, which I'm sure makes you excited, Shane, to see some something happen that's not um, just Republican dominated. <laughs> so what's your take on some of the executive actions and which ones did you want to touch on today? Yeah, it really does make me excited. I was mostly just excited to have a new change, a change in administration, have a new president and get rid of Donald Trump. But it's been very gratifying to see Biden come in and take action so quickly. I think there was a lot of there were a lot of questions as to whether or not he was going to come in and be aggressive, whether or not he was sort of middle of the road and just kind of looking to come in and be a placeholder until some new generation like Kamala can take over. But it seems like he really is bucking expectations and coming in with quite a an impressive agenda. And he's hot out the gate. He is not holding back. He's not, you know, this is we're a week in and he has released a flurry of executive orders and has uh, articulated his view for for the next year and at least the next couple of years, probably for his overarching agenda. So it's been really interesting to see. Um, and I guess I'm just curious to see your thoughts on it, because it has been such an active entry to his administration and sort of where you're at, if you expected this, and then I'd like to get your feedback on some of the actions that he's taking and just, you know, where you fall on those. I think I expected a lot of it and not too surprised by most of it. I think that some of these are symbolic, but some of them also have the chance to backfire as well. I think the big one is like the Keystone XL pipeline, which may not have been a big shock, but certainly for a certain element of working class and even unionized workers who work in construction and work on pipelines and work in the oil industry, I think there is some nervousness that Biden will be hostile to these oil interests, which, again, conservatives tried to warn people about. <laughs> and I guess it's, it's debatable how you know hostile he's going to be and how much of this is just sort of early action until he can build consensus around something resembling, you know, a Green New Deal. But, you know, certainly on the Keystone Pipeline, I think that's a mistake. I think it was a mistake when Obama effectively slow walked it and then killed it. Um, I guess just to give the quick background and Shane, you can you can fact check me in real time if you want. But, you know, what I recall reading on the Keystone XL Pipeline was that early in the Obama years when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, it looked like there was an approval process for Keystone XL. There was nothing too controversial about it, at least to the, the powers that be at the time. But then some environmentalists started to object and the global warming issue became a bigger and bigger issue in the Democratic Party. And they started to placate that environmental wing of the Democratic Party. And part of that was to kill effectively the Keystone pipeline in the Obama years. And at the time, it seemed like there were plenty of liberals and Democrats who felt like maybe this wasn't the right hill to die on. It wasn't uh, the best policy um, fight to have just because there was always a potential that you kill the pipeline. And so and just for people who maybe haven't read about this recently, we're talking about oil from Canada. 
that's going to come into the United States to be refined and sold to the U.S. for the most part. So the question is, if you kill the Keystone Pipeline, is that going to just result in Canada putting the same oil onto trains and other modes of transportation and still taking the oil out of the ground and exporting it anyway, but now doing it in a way that actually increases the carbon footprint? So that's always been my take on it. Uh, perhaps you can give me some more nuances if I'm missing something. But, you know, to me, it just seems like placating part of the base that, you know, maybe Biden could have been more of a uniter, hashtag unite, right? Uh, <laughs> hashtag unity, is that what it is? To say, hey, you know, maybe there's a way to compromise on these issues. Maybe there's a way to reduce our total carbon footprint as a country without picking on Canada and picking on the Keystone Pipeline. Well, I would take issue with almost everything you just said, to be honest. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, let's start with the fact that, first off, he's not canceling the pipeline. The Keystone Pipeline will still exist. It has existed since George Bush uh, originally allowed it. This is the Keystone XL. This is a proposed addition to the Keystone Pipeline with a bigger bore pipe that would be pumping more of these uh, tar sands oil from Canada. So this is not going to affect the Keystone Pipeline. This is a proposed addition that now won't be happening. It has never happened. He's not shutting anything down. I think one mile of it has been created, something like that so far. So first off, I think people need to understand that this is not getting rid of the Keystone Pipeline. This is just a, a this is just an idea that is now being rescinded. And I also would disagree that, you know, you mentioned that Republicans warned people about this. Well, Biden promised people this, and this is part of what got him elected, and 7 million more people voted for him, and presumably they support the idea of climate change being a problem. And tar sands are really pretty awful. And in fact, the idea that Canada is going to continue moving forward with it without the Keystone XL and put it on trains. The reason they want the XL pipeline is because this stuff is so expensive to pull out of the ground. It's so expensive to transport that it's not really feasible for them to do it any other way. So this will effectively limit to just what we are pulling out now, the amount of tar sands oil that's that's coming from Canada. So this is effective in effectively keeping things at the status quo. So it's not some, you know, radical environmentalist agenda. This isn't Greenpeace out there tearing down a pipeline. This is just keeping the status quo and moving us hopefully away from, I would like to move us away from these types of really, really dirty fossil fuels, but this isn't even doing that. This is just making sure that we don't expand them. Right. But for me, the whole premise that we're going to meaningfully transition away from fossil fuels anytime in the next five to 10 years, I think is kind of a fool's errand. I, I just think that, you know, we're going to continue to use oil and gas for a long time to come and sort of arbitrarily killing certain pipelines that have gotten a lot of attention and just feel like more politics than policy. And I'm not going to say that, you know, the conservative side doesn't do the same thing on certain issues, but it just feels like it, it, it feels more symbolic. It's more about politics than it is about really saying, hey, let's let's reveal what our Green New Deal is. And maybe that's coming. Well, and how does that how does that feel symbolic and not tangible if we are 
functionally limiting to what we have now, the amount of tar sands. I mean, this is a real policy. If he allowed Keystone XL to go through, it would be ramping up our use of tar sands oil. And these, the idea that if we don't, that we can't actually meaningfully make changes in the next few years is based on inertia. That's based on the idea that we're not doing that. That doesn't mean we can't. If there is the political will and they put the money behind it, we can. I mean, that that is how things work. That's how COVID is going to get taken care of. That's how Operation Warp Speed, the highly touted Operation Warp Speed, which was, we said we couldn't, do. it's, you know, Donald Trump, it said, they said it couldn't be done within two years and we did it within six months. You can do that if you have the will and the money. And unfortunately, I don't think there is the will in Congress to go forward and get a lot more done. But that is that's only because of that attitude, honestly. The attitude I think that a lot of Republicans have, which is, well, this is not reasonable. It's not realistic. If, if we're looking at the pandemic as a national emergency and we mobilize the way we need to to address it, I think we need to be looking at climate change as a national emergency and mobilizing as well, because that is an extinction level event hovering off in our future that is much more dangerous than a pandemic. So I think from the left, we're looking at this as a crisis. And from the, le- the right, we're looking at this as a few jobs. And honestly, this is a few jobs. This is the Keystone Pipeline XL portion, the addition, would only have employed a few thousand people for about six months. After that, it would go down to like 35 jobs that would be stable going forward. So this would be a little little injection of a few thousand jobs for a temporary for a short amount of time. So to me, that's certainly, you know, the cost benefit analysis here is pretty clear. But, you know, again, this is just a matter of will. Well, yeah, I guess it I mean, this is going to be to be continued, because I think that this is just a a moose bouche of what's to come on environmental policy. Uh, you know, this is just sort of the opening salvo, right? This is just Biden laying down some markers. And, you know, I get why he's doing it. Um, I don't think we're facing an extinction level event, but I think we might defer that for a later date when when Biden puts out, you know, the real policy. But uh, I mean, I guess if the goal is just how do we reduce total, you know, carbon output, this is a pretty minor thing. It's, bar- it's barely a drop in the bucket one way or the other. But, um, you know, in general, I don't necessarily think that the United States should be, you know, shaming Canada in terms of how they manage their, um, you know, tar sand uh, oil inventory. I think that, you know, Canada can manage that however they want to. I guess if, if, if we're laying down the marker that we're not going to buy the tar sand oil, that's fine. Or we're only going to buy a smaller amount of it, then <laughs> I guess... You know, Biden, Biden can make that uh, make that case. But I think there's just a lot more to come on on well, this issue. And yeah, I mean, we're not telling Canada what they can do with their tar sands oil. We're telling them where they can lay pipe and whether they can lay it across our country, where it, they can stick their pipe, so to speak. Right. I mean, but it's <laughs> our country that they want to lay the pipe across. They're not we're not going into Canada and telling them, you know, how they can manage their their own pipe. It's where they want to put their pipe in our country. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, as far as it being an extinction level event, I mean, obviously that's alarmist talk. I, I'm not a huge alarmist. I'm not even, you know, a, a Greenpeace. I'm not out there uh, getting in front of whale boats. I don't think I'm very radical. I do think, you know, I am curious. Do you look at climate as an overblown issue? Do you think that, because I mean, the science is, is 
pretty clear. Like there aren't very many credible scientists who don't believe that we need to address climate change in a very, very urgent manner. Would you disagree with that? Well, I think that climate change, like anything else, should be subject to a cost benefit analysis, right? And so if the goal is, you know, can we reduce carbon and reduce pollution over a period of time? That's fine. But I think that some of the markers that people have laid down, sort of most famously with um, AOC and the Green New Deal, that went, to, you know, at least on paper, it went through to these extremes of getting down to like a zero carbon output. And I think that that kind of that kind of talk is not realistic. And maybe in, the, in a way that sort of harms the overall cause, because I think people can't even wrap their brain around getting down to like zero you know, carbon output. And so in that regard, it comes back to this question of, okay, well, what is the cost benefit analysis? So I'm not opposed to having a reasonable target to reduce carbon. Um, but I do think that sort of that apocalyptic talk about, you know, all life is at stake, which Elizabeth Warren said a few weeks ago, um, you know, or that, you know, all human life is at stake. You know, I, I get the risks that are associated if the, uh, you know, climate continues to warm, but I think also realistically, you know, the U.S. is one part of that puzzle. There's a lot of other countries that are producing carbon and will continue to increase their carbon footprint. And it's fine for the U.S. to lead the way if we if we reduce our carbon footprint, which, by the way, we are. We are switching a lot of our coal plants over to natural gas, and that's been a good thing for the environment uh, in, in a lot of ways. But I think that the notion that the U.S. can lead the way and that's going to solve the problem, it doesn't really get us there. You know, we had it and we're getting a little bit off topic. We started with, with the executive actions, but, <laughs> you know, Biden also wants to put us back in the, um, the Paris Climate Accords. Those are all lofty goals. And I don't want to completely rain on the parade of people who want, um, you know, less carbon in the atmosphere. But what I would say is that, you know, there's all these lofty goals, but there's not really a lot of force a lot of commitment by other countries to actually reduce their carbon footprint. So the notion that we, we're going to lead the way and that's going to make a big difference, I think people are sort of kidding themselves about what that means. And more importantly, they may be kidding themselves about what the real cost is, that if we begin to embrace solar and wind, there's just a lot of challenges that go along with that. And I'm just not convinced that we're going to get there anytime soon or that people have really thought through the cost benefit of, of doing all that. Well, a couple of things. I think that the cost benefit analysis always comes down on the Republican side to dollars. And on the Democratic side, often it comes down to lives. And I think we tend to value lives over dollars. And we're seeing that with the pandemic. You know, should we just open up because businesses are going under, even though it's going to possibly kill my grandma? Like, to me, these are existential on a small level and sometimes on a big level. The fact that other countries aren't going to necessarily follow our lead, which I might take issue with. But even if we take that as a premise, that just makes it more imperative that we do this, because that means that if other countries are ramping up, we need to ramp down even more to compensate because global warming, again, if you do believe that it's a major problem, which every reputable scientist on Earth does, then this is a serious problem that we need to address. Now, I do agree that when it comes to the actual ability to get things passed and the actual ability to make change, that is problematic. It's hard because there are a lot of people who don't, you know, there are a lot of Republicans in the world and a lot of them happen to be in Congress. 
Um, and they are representing, even though they're 50 percent of the Senate right now, they're representing 41 million less Americans, but they have minority rule. And so we are kind of stuck with this inertia. And I do think that if America were to, I, I think you might be underestimating the power that America has, especially consumer wise, if we stop buying products from countries that are not making the right steps when it comes to emissions, that would have a huge effect. But again, it is costly. We, we, we have to pay for these things. And I'm, I and my party are mostly willing to invest the dollars and cents that's necessary, that, are, that would be necessary. And I don't think Republicans are. And, you know, it's, it's a fundamental disagreement on sort of basic values, in my opinion. Well, that might be some of that might be true, at least in terms of, you know, what people are willing to invest in. But, you know, one more thing to think about, too, is that if the Green New Deal or some variation of it really comes to fruition, whether it includes a carbon tax or whether it just includes more expensive energy, you know, people should also keep in mind that effectively it becomes a regressive tax that the poor and the middle class will pay more on and um, that they'll pay more taxes on. and so. The I'm sure there there's a way where they'll try and rig it where the rich are actually paying more, or the corporations are paying more, <laughs> and it'll be inter interesting to see that when it comes. But you know, ultimately, if the cost of goods go up, if the cost of energy goes up, that's generally not a great thing for the poor and the middle class. And you know, maybe I can afford to pay some of these higher taxes and higher utility bills, but it's not going to be a pleasant thing when people start to see how challenging this really is and how expensive it really is to subsidize electric cars to, you know, take more and more coal and natural gas plants offline or replace them with more expensive utilities. So I think that that's part of why it's such a, a tough hill to climb. And frankly, it's also why, even though a lot of people say it's a huge issue for the planet, it's a huge issue for individual countries, most countries haven't really taken action on it. And, you know, maybe we're finally getting to a tipping point where the voters really express their will specifically on this issue. But, you know, the de, the de facto policy of practically every country in the world has been, it's not worth it. You know, we're, we're just gonna, we're gonna keep trying to promote inexpensive energy and deal with the consequences later. And there is a school of thought that says, you're never gonna get all the countries to reduce global carbon output. I mean, just thinking about the coordination problem of getting everyone in the world effectively to reduce their total collective carbon output is, you know, it's almost impossible to wrap your brain around that. I mean, and, we've done it. We have, yeah. we have collectively, the, America puts out much less, we, we are not carbon neutral and we're not going to get there anytime soon, but we have moved in that direction steadily over the last couple decades. We absolutely are doing that. With and natural gas with natural gas, with, you know, with minimizing the the amount of, I mean, even things like additives to gasoline. I mean, we we have certainly been moving and obviously wind and solar power. I mean, we have definitely been moving away from dirty sources of energy for decades now. Well, I mean, even the additives, I mean, the the history on this is, is really interesting, too. I mean, I'm not sure if ethanol is one of the things that comes to mind for you, but, you know, even though ethanol technically burns cleaner and it is technically, you know, renewable, like you can, like you can grow ethanol at home without importing oil. Those, those things might be true on a net basis. Ethanol has actually been bad for global warming because so much fuel and energy goes into creating the corn and the, the plants that you use to create the ethanol and then to 
to you know, process the ethanol, you're actually doing more damage to the environment in terms of CO2 than you have in the past. I think even Al Gore acknowledged that at one point when he was um, out of office. So, you know, there is, there is a history to this. And, you know, I, I know you uh, on Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, I'm, I'm a regular listener, as you probably know, uh, you guys covered <laughs> the nuclear power issue. And if you look back at the history of the environmental movement, there was a time when we could have shifted off of coal and gas in a meaningful way by embracing nuclear power. And a few countries did this, including Japan and I think France and Germany to a lesser extent. They did that. And their their total carbon footprint from at least their electrical grid is much, much smaller than what we have in the United States. But at the time, the environmentalists said, no, 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 we don't like nuclear power because of nuclear waste and other concerns. And that was fine. They won that battle. But after they won that battle, we continued to rely on coal and natural gas. Um, there's even some funny quotes out there where you can find like a Ralph Nader quote saying, we don't need nuclear power. We have, you know, we have many, many years of coal to power the country. <laughs> and so, you know, granted, maybe the facts have changed, the circumstances have changed. We know more now than we did then. But I also think people should be aware of the history of these issues that, you know, this is not all happening in a vacuum. This is happening after decades of questionable environmental policy pushed by the left. And now we're going to face several more decades of potentially questionable policy pushed by the left. And so I just, again, I want, I just want people to be aware of that. And it, it all kind of factors into how you view the issue of climate change. Yeah. I mean, I would characterize that as decades of questionable economic policy pushed by the right at the expense of the environment. But I agree absolutely that this is a thorny issue. And as I expressed on that episode of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, I am not against nuclear power. I do think that there are some major problems with it. And as you've seen with the investments of countries like Japan in nuclear power, you also have issues like Fukushima. Um, you also have with the original XL pipeline, we've had it's there have been number a number of pretty big uh, leaks that have been that have done significant damage. One of, and the XL pipeline was actually scheduled or uh, would have gone over the, I think it's called the Oglala aquifer in Canada, which is a drinking source for thousands of people. I mean, there are real consequences on both sides of this issue, but I do absolutely agree that this is not, it, it can't be filtered down into talking points like, you know, we're facing an extinction level event. I agree that 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 kind of alarmist talk, which I'm guilty of clearly occasionally, uh, does sort of strip away the nuance of this issue. And there is a lot there to unpack. Obviously, like even solar, solar is where we need to be going. Solar, electric power, hydropower, wind power. These are things that we really need to be moving into. But those investments, you know, even to create a solar panel takes like you know, petroleum products and takes, it takes uh, energy to produce. But once you have those panels over time, the benefits are going to outweigh the drawbacks. So again, this stuff is complicated. It is a, a, a can of worms for another day. But I think that the, it does point to that fundamental disagreement, which is just Democrats tend to look at like, how can we approach something to save the maximum number of lives on this, whereas I see Republicans approaching this as dollars and cents. And I think that we need to be moving away from that mentality in America if we're ever going to be a better nation. 
that's fine. And maybe we'll leave it there. But I also think that it's not just a question of dollars and cents. I think it's a question of what are you getting for the money that you're investing in whatever I mean, project? I mean, you're doing, isn't right? that the definition of dollars and cents? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but again, I mean, if, if the goal is, I guess it depends again, how far out you're looking, right. And, and how realistic it is to even that you're ever going to get to the goal, right. That even, even if you could wave a wand and the U S stop producing carbon tomorrow, right. What does that really mean for the globe? What does that really mean for even temperatures? You know, even if even if every country cut their carbon footprint in half overnight, right, or they reduce it by 100 percent, you know, there are questions about all the carbon that's still in the atmosphere now. What happens to that? You know, how, how likely is it that you're really going to see temperatures come down? I think there's just a lot of unknowns. And, um, you know, again, I'm not trying to say that Republicans have all the answers on this, but I'm just saying that it's. The, the, even the dialogue that we're having right now, I mean, for all the airtime that uh, people sort of absorb on issues of global warming, I always feel like, you know, in the media, they don't really present both sides. And it's not just a question of is climate change happening or not. It's a question of, you know, what do we really want to invest in the potential solutions? And again, so and that's part of why we're doing the podcast. And I hope that, you know, people get some benefit out of that. Yeah. I mean, again, it's kind of sounds like it's coming down to dollars and cents. You're saying, what are we going to invest in the solutions? I think if you're a smoker and you have been smoking for 30 years and you're, you know, a 50 year old man and someone tells you, look, if you stop smoking, you know, you're probably still going to get cancer sometime down the road, but you'll live a little bit longer. It's one of those like, yeah, you should still stop smoking. Like <laughs> just because we are, you know, it, we're looking at like how many lives are going to be saved. Well, we should move right away and save the maximum amount of lives. And that's just kind of where my party tends to look at it. But you know, <laughs> I see what you're saying. It's a, it is a sticky issue on both sides and it, and it's not that simple. It's not just as simple as the Republicans want to kill our grandmas. You know, that's not what it comes down to, but I think it is, it does point to a fundamental difference in, in outlook. All right. Did you have any other executive actions that you wanted to focus on with Biden coming in? Well, there are so many, and I guess I just, I guess I'd want to know like which ones you wouldn't agree with or which ones maybe you do agree with. I, the ones in particular that I think are interesting, uh, let's see, some you said are more substantive and some are more symbolic. Advancing racial equality in the federal workforce, that's kind of symbolic, but I'm glad that, you know, he's moving in that direction. Mask mandates on federal property, you know, there's, that doesn't make a huge difference. Uh, he is mandating masks on interstate travel. So that's interesting because that will give some teeth to the airline industry. And uh, how do you feel yeah, about and, that? And I, would, I, would, I would support that. Yeah, I think that, you know, that, that would probably be a missed opportunity for Trump to just embrace the masking as sort of a way of reopening, right? Because obviously Republicans tend to be in favor of reopening quickly. So yeah, it, it, it's a bizarre thing that Trump wasn't able to sort of connect the dots on that and say, well, hey, what if I embrace masking and reopening, right? Because that, right. that seemed to be the middle ground approach that most Americans were sort of living in their daily lives. How about this um, scrapping Trump's two-for-one regulation cutting policy? So Trump had enacted an executive order basically saying that for any new regulation that was created, we had to dispense with two others, which to me, 
I get the idea behind that. That's very Republican friendly. It's a very slogany, but that's kind of a weird hammer to take to, again, a nuanced issue. Uh, what do you think about that? I think I liked it when, when Trump did it. I haven't heard too many complaints about it. You know, of all the things that you heard complaining about Trump, I don't think I heard a lot of complaints about that policy after it went into effect. So, uh, but it's not surprising Biden would repeal it because obviously they're going to be asserting a lot of regulations. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that every regulation that, so you think that there are regardless of the area of interest or the particular department that's being looked at, that they can always get rid of two regulations and be okay for every one regulation that they put in? Well, I think that the the amount of regulations that just exist in general is quite staggering. So I don't know that like doing a two-for-one deal on regulations is necessarily the, the best organizing principle for that, but I do think that to the extent that you can find unnecessary regulations that were just sort of asserted by the executive over the years and begin to repeal them, I don't think that's so bad. And again, we could we could you know dig into that on, on a later date. But I think that you know in general businesses have a lot of red tape to sort of cut through, and and Republicans sometimes point out that you know sometimes big businesses get a little too cozy with the Democratic Party where. Big businesses can afford to comply with whatever regulations you throw at them, but it's a lot of times it's smaller businesses that are not able to um, comply with all these regulations, and and that makes it a little bit different uh, difficult to be an entrepreneur and to you know deal with um, all these uh, laws that are on the books. And I understand that argument from a Republican standpoint. This to me feels like the original executive action was a hammer versus a scalpel. I, it's very strange to me, the idea that you just have to go in, regardless of what the issue is, we have to throw away two regulations for every regulation we put in place without looking at the individual issues and nuances again. So yeah, that's interesting. That's definitely- Yeah, that's fair. But again, I mean, of all, of all the things Trump did over four years, I don't remember people howling too much about the repealing of specific regulations. I'm sure there was howling on certain environmental issues that they didn't like what Trump was doing in general. But I also don't know that I heard a lot of complaints about, you know, this regulation went away and now we're in trouble. And, you know, I, I just didn't see any evidence of that. How about uh, pausing federal student loan payments and potentially forgiving student loans sometime in the future? I think, well, I think that was an extension of the Trump policy and the student loan forgiveness. I think, I think I'll kick the can down the road We'll talk about that a different day. (laughs) It's a big subject. How about ending the Muslim ban? Well, yeah, it was a travel ban on a set of specific countries. And not surprisingly, that Biden is changing that. I also don't know what the practical effect of that is, because the travel in general is such a mishmash of different regulations right now in the pandemic. Yeah, right Uh, now, I think, I mean, you can't come here if you're in, if you're a British citizen right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it seems like um, that's not super. It seems like that'll be as COVID starts to burn out, that will be more of an issue. Yeah. I, I never really thought that it was a very well-conceived policy when Trump first came in and tried to ban travel from specific countries. I didn't think that that was like a very well thought through policy, but at the same time, 
you know, I also didn't see it as like the end of the world or a fascist takeover when he did it. You know, the executive has a certain amount of control over immigration and, you know, I don't think it was a great policy. I think there were probably a lot of problems with it, but not surprised that Biden is you know, repealing it. Yeah. And I wasn't surprised he did it. And I also did feel that he had the right to do it as president. And I think the courts reaffirmed that. That doesn't mean that I thought it was a good idea or not horribly racist. He did call it a Muslim ban numerous times during his campaign. Technically, Islam is not a race. That's true. Islam is a, is a religion. Technically not racist. You can put that on a bumper sticker. Technically not racist. <laughs> well, that's like saying that anti-Semitism isn't that you're not targeting a race. But I think that the Israeli people, for the most part, would say that if you're anti-Semitic, you're probably anti-Israel and you definitely are targeting people of, of, of an ethnicity. Fair enough. I'm not an expert on that, but I, I think you're right in what you just said. Um, what about, how about the wall? The wall. So Biden is stopping work on the wall. <laughs> again, not surprising. I, again, I, I never saw the wall as being a great thing. And I never saw it as, you know, some horrible thing either. I mean, obviously we already have, you know, hundreds of miles of wall as it is. Um, you know, I, I remember when, when Trump actually won the election, there were some voices on the left that said, you know, maybe we should just build the wall in exchange for, you know, some kind of comprehensive immigration policy, right? Yeah. The wall, you know, a wall is neither good nor evil. It's just a wall. And and obviously we, we, we try to police that border as best we can. It doesn't mean that we're not, that we can't allow in, you know, lots of migration, but it just means that there should be a way to regulate it that, you know, the, the, the policy of just having lots of border patrol people out there catching people seems like not the best policy either. So uh, I, I guess, really, yeah. Yeah, I don't really have an issue with the concept of, of a wall. I think that every country has borders and tries to defend them. I, I sort of take issue with what I would think that Republicans would have a problem with, and we've talked about before, which is the dollars and cents of it, because the amount of money he spent on this wall with slats that anyone could walk through half the time it just seemed ridiculous to me it seemed like a huge waste of money i wasn't as angry about the immigration aspects of it because i don't think it was very effective and maybe it was slightly more effective than the old wall but we certainly weren't dealing with an onslaught of immigration over the border that was either positively or negatively affected by spending all this money on a wall to me it was just a waste of money yeah, and that may be, and they never actually appropriated that much money for it anyway. So <laughs> the the final bill never came due. There wasn't that much uh, new walls that got built. I think most of the most of the money that got spent was sort of reinforcing and replacing existing walls and fencing. Uh, and in terms of the new wall, uh, in terms of total mileage or whatever, uh, it never really expanded a whole lot during uh, the last four years. No, I don't know how much uh, additional wall they added. I think it was almost none. I think it mostly was retrofitting. The one thing I do know is um, I'm pretty sure Mexico didn't pay for much of it. <laughs> Which was also one of the one of the weirder uh, campaign promises for anyone to make. That was very strange. And then finally, adding undocumented immigrants back into the census. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the history of it is that it's it's always been based on total population, right? 
Yeah, I think it's just the wording of the Constitution. I mean, that's I don't even really take issue with the idea that Republicans would want to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census. I mean, that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, I believe it's just in the Constitution. It just says the total number of people shall be counted. And that to me is there's not a lot of room to parse that. Yeah, I mean, I think that well, Trump was I think what Trump was trying to do was he was trying to shine a light on the issue of like things like congressional um, redistricting and stuff like that. Right. That. Well, yeah, I mean, it, well, I don't think he was trying to shine a light on it. I think he was trying to influence it and affect it. Well, right. So the census can be used for, I think, a couple of different things. Like, for, like the, the way I always heard it sort of promoted when uh, even long before Trump came in, people pointed out like, hey, even if you're not here legally, you know, fill out the census form and send it in because it, it affects things like how much money we spend on schools, um, which, again, there are children both born here and not born here who are in our schools and we want to count them. Right. We want to count them for how we spend money and that kind of thing. Right. Um, as as a separate question, there is a question of if you're apportioning congress congressional districts, um, should that be done based on the number of U.S. citizens in a particular area or should it be based on the number of people in the area, whether they're here legally or illegally or whatever? And I think I think that's the kind of thing that, hey, you know, speaking of executive actions, maybe we should pass a law about that. <laughs> what a what a novel concept that would be to just let our legislators debate and, you know, try and work this out and come to a conclusion and discuss it with the American people instead of just whoever happens to be in the White House that year signs an order and says, we're doing it this way. So, you know, I, I would like to see a more robust debate on those types of topics and not just have it be subject to the whims of the executive. Yeah, I agree. I think that there is a valid debate to be had as to whether people who are not actually able to vote should count when it comes to districting, redistricting and determining, you know, how much representation a certain area of a state has in Congress. Uh, you, you uh, as a cong as a congressperson, you are representing your constituents. Are you representing just the people who vote for you or should you be re representing everyone? I think you should be representing everyone, but I certainly do see why there's a valid debate as to, well, should that person care about people who can't vote for him or her anyway? So it is an area of valid debate, and I agree that it would be nice to see some kind of clarity on that. Uh, I would like it to go a certain way, but I do think that at least there should be some resolution to it. All right. So I think we'll wrap it up here today. Shane, as always, thank you for your time. And we'll be back tomorrow, perhaps discussing education issues and how it relates to COVID. So there's a little teaser for everybody to tune in tomorrow. And we'll sign off for now. See you all soon. And as always, I should make our pitch. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to get input from our audience. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you.